0: Welcome to the Innovation Nation on Career Bus Canada's unique radio conversation that empowers lives, enriches careers, and energizes organizations.
1: Nibbling on sponge cake Watching the sun bake All of those tubes covered with oil Strumming my six strings on my front porch swing, smell of shrimp they again at the bar.
0: To the innovation nation on career bus hi i'm stephen armstrong and i'm pleased to be your host today on innovation nation on career bus innovation nation explores the intersection of the real business world and people's career development we explore how individuals turn their personal passion for innovation into tangible commercial or practical success thank you for tuning in this morning well, that's on Margaritaville. Actually, our, our host, our guest, sorry, our guest today has some comments to make about it. it, has has great meaning to him and to his topic today. Our show today focuses on the homeless in Toronto, and we're re- revisiting um this topic six years later. And it's much worse, to be honest, it's much worse. We will explore the plight of the homeless in downtown Toronto by focusing on the St. Simon's shelter in Cabbage Town. Now located at the Isabel Hotel in right downtown Toronto on Sherbourne Street. The measure of a society is found in how they treat their weakness and their most helpless citizens. That was stated by Abraham Lincoln. And a nation's greatness is measured by how it treats its weakest members. And that's Mahatma Gandhi. Our guest today, Bob Duff, is a total expert on this subject because he lives it. He's been living it for decades um, in, 19, in 2017, Bob actually, t- uh, the, the focus of that show was really his work at the St. Simon's Shelter. He's the executive director of that shelter for the homeless in the Cabbage Town area of downtown Toronto, the east side. And Bob shares his personal story of a tra- he, he shared at that time his personal story of his trajectory from Bay Street, which for those who are not from Toronto, it's built into Wall Street in Canada and Toronto. It's where all the finance, the banks and so on are. He was a family man at that time, and he went right from 50th floor to homelessness. And he became a tireless frontline worker with the downtown homeless population. Basically, he picked himself up from the great line on the streets of Toronto with help. And he'll tell you his story again today. And he became a, a real top activist in the Uh, helping the homeless people in downtown Toronto, and that's over many, many, many years and thousands and thousands of homeless people. He holds a bachelor's degree in journalism from Ryerson University, now Toronto Metropolitan University, and a Master of Arts in Economics from the University of Ottawa, and a Juris Doctorate from Stetson University in Florida. Bob, welcome back to the show. Well, thank you, Stephen. Uh, Thank you for inviting me. My Tell pleasure. me, what, what does Margarita mean to you? What, what did it remind you of that song? Well, first and foremost, we all acknowledge uh,
2: that Jimmy Buffett was a tremendous uh, artist. He also had a significant degree of social responsibility. And uh, he has developed uh, within Florida uh, three uh, senior-specific uh, communities. And he refers to them as Changes in Latitude. And they're specifically developed, designed, and the services are delivered in recognition of our demographic of an aging population. And the costs are significantly reduced because that is Jimmy Buffett. And as you're aware, I did live in Florida for a number of years. But bringing that back, the song, and we lost it two days ago, I automatically went, we could change some of the verbiage to wasting away in Allen Gardens, and for anyone who lives in Toronto, and most specifically in the downtown core area, Cabbage Town, Regent Park, I encourage you to walk by and look at that. And it is, in my opinion, it's disgusting, it's reprehensible, and it's how far we have fallen. And you know, part of Buffett's uh, language verse of the song was uh some people say there's a woman to blame but I know it's nobody's fault and I changed that to all of us own this together as a collective and I'll of course leave it as such but I do love the song regardless. Well,
0: just paint a picture in your own words of what Alan Gardens is. Try to Try, Alan, to, try to describe it like an artist would. Well, Allen Gardens is representative of uh,
2: the demographics of our community. Unfortunately for the folks who are having to reside there, uh, the reality is they've had many barriers. Uh, and so we've they've set up tents. Uh, there's no lavatory facilities. Uh, the tents obviously aren't heated. It operated last winter. And these folks are marginalized. Many have significant mental health issues. That's where we can look at what has happened to the Mental Health Act and the application of it. It needs to be revisited. Many have addiction issues and addiction is an illness. Nobody wakes up one morning and says, oh, I want to become a fentanyl addict or I want to become a crack addict. That's virtually impossible. And there are economic barriers. So when I look at it and I am embarrassed as a Torontonian, as a Canadian, and as Bob Duff myself personally, because when I fell to the concrete of the sidewalk, as you might be aware, as I shared, there was an outreach worker from a United Way funded agency who engaged with me and supported me and got me off the street into a shelter, Dixon Hall and that saved my life and it turned my life around dramatically and that is why I'm alive today and to be able to share this
0: how, lo- how long or, ago was how long ago was that by the way uh, 1993 concept? 1993 right. so 35 37 years yes so you know what you're talking about been there done it bought the t-shirt and don't wish to go back give us some statistics uh, in terms of the number of beds or in, you know, shelter, the number of homeless in Toronto downtown. Now, yes. I also want to say to the listeners this Allen Gardens is 10 minutes' walk from some of the tallest skyscrapers in the world and some of the most concentrated wealth in the world. So, that this is a bizarre situation. You're literally talking about 10 to 15 minutes' walk to a skyline that's similar to Manhattan. And there's all these homeless. Now this is not just Toronto; it's in San Francisco, Los Angeles, New York. It's everywhere. It's all over North America. So, but Toronto is a big, is a big, big city, and this is a huge community. So, put put the numbers in context, Bob, please. Like the amount of homeless and the amount of shelters you, the amount of beds that you you deal with. Well,
2: first and foremost, we do conduct a street count and street needs analysis. Uh, once every two years. Unfortunately, COVID uh, derailed uh, one that we should have had. I think we're all understanding the reasons why. What we do know that when it comes to the hard count, we now have 10,000 beds within our shelter, shelter, hotel sector, and we're full. As a matter of interest, folks, central intake, uh, walks, 100 folks a day because there's no room at the hotel or the shelter. We are maxed out. If we juxtapose that to 2017, we had approximately 3,600 beds in their system. So we've almost tripled, and we're still maxed out. That's incredible. Yeah, But when we come back to what is the real count of those who are homeless, and how we arrive at that, we count very accurately the number of shelter beds that are occupied. We then try to count and reach out to find the folks that are living in squats, in the ravines, under bridges, and folks who are sleeping in the uh, an ATM machine uh, entry to a bank, which by the way, those are all locked down. Uh, we try to take into consideration the number of individuals who will be discharged from hospital to uh, NFA, no fixed address. We try to make account for those who will be discharged from provincial reformatory, uh, which is not federal, just provincial, to NFA, no fixed address. And then we attempt to try to see if we could arrive at something, and those who are homeless or under house, it's individuals that are couch surfing. That means you're living with a family member or, or a close friend or whatever, but actually that's not a healthy situation frequently so if you ask me what we know is the real number here in toronto i would express it somewhere in the magnitude of between 22 000
0: to 25 000 and that's the city itself <clears throat> not the greater toronto area which would probably die. no i'm not
2: going beyond that no within toronto <laughs> itself
0: mm-hmm.
2: so i think we have to look at that and i kind of find it uh challenging to consider that uh toronto is the economic engine of the province of Ontario. Uh, We actually are 50% almost of the GDP in the province of Ontario. 30% in the country? Yes. And so we're one of the wealthiest cities in the world. And yet when we juxtapose it against what is visible, and that's the other key piece we're coming back to is the visibility of homelessness has exploded. But I also have this analogy And that is, homelessness is like an iceberg. Nine tenths of that iceberg, we know, is below sea level. So we're only seeing one tenth. And there's a significant percentage that we don't
0: even know what the status is or what's rising. So the city itself is about 3.2 million people. Now the city, the greater area is seven, roughly seven. Correct. 7 million. So you're saying that within that population, there's it's it's even ten times, nearly ten times worse. It's it's all hidden.
2: Yes. Now there's been some influencing factors which we have to acknowledge. Uh, COVID has not been uh, uh, beneficial in any way, shape, or form, and there was nothing we had no uh, control over that as to how it arose or whatever. Uh, there's other factors involved. And, uh, one what we are aware of is that for example the average length of stay now in a shelter juxtaposed to uh, 2017 has tripled so we said for example uh, whether your name is Greta or Amit or whatever uh, your normal length of stay would be approximately six months we're now at over a year and a half pushing into two years And what folks, what we need to understand, shelters are emergency. They were never designed to be housing, but our shelter sector has become a default form of housing. And we're not designed for that. That was never the intent. And when we come back to it, it
0: flows from the lack of affordable housing, bar none. In a nutshell, what are you doing? Uh, so why did you move from the St. Simon's church to Isabella Hotel? What what was the reason for that move? Well, there were uh
2: very succinctly, uh because of COVID, we okay. couldn't provide for safe space separation. So fortunately, uh this site, Isabella Hotel, was available. And I can express this, it's made a significant difference because once we relocated here, we have not had a single loss of life due to COVID, which is amazing. And equally important for our listening audience is that we have not had a single overdose and loss of life due to opiates. And just so folks are aware, year 2022, we lost 5,000 Torontonians from opioid overdoses. And I just expressed this, I checked something the other day. The province of Ontario, we had 319 fatalities uh, involving uh, MVAs, motor vehicle accidents. And however, these 5,000 folks, let's be honest, yes, they are the marginalized. Yes, there are those that have significant mental health issues. And I express this. They're disposable. And that's ugly. It's extremely ugly. Mm -hmm. And I'm sad because those folks were someone's brother, sister, mother, friend, cousin. We can go down the list. And when we think of it, there are those that are left grieving. And we all are inexplicably linked. And I come back to you, you, you expressed something that Matt Gandhi shared and Abraham Lincoln. And I express something else now Victor Hugo, Les Miserables, man's, and I don't wish to genderize this, by the way, but man's inhumanity to his fellow man. And we don't have to travel far to see that firsthand in our face, Alan Gardens.
0: I'm Stephen Armstrong, and you're listening to the Innovation Nation on Bus here on CIUT 89.5 FM in Toronto and worldwide online at CIUT.fm. Topic today is the homeless in downtown Toronto, and our guest is Bob Duff, who is a real true expert on this subject. Let's drill into a few of the details, Bob, of the issues, like there's rent control, opioids, lack of beds, and so on. Unpack that a little bit, please. You, you, you have already, uh, but let's just go through each of those. Well, And, and, and maybe, maybe also you can weave it in the federal government's role and yep. the role of the private sector, but in no order. Just go ahead and we'll talk about it. Go ahead.
2: Well, first and foremost, what I find to be interesting, as we're aware, most of our provinces in the 70s implemented some form of rent control. Here in Ontario, it's spoken to under the Residential Tenancies Act. And actually, it was a tremendous uh, premier, uh, Bill Davis, uh, who was progressive conservative and at times frequently referred to as a red Tory, uh, which is different from a full Tory. So basically a liberal
0: in waiting. Yeah, a left-wing Tory, a left-wing conservative.
2: (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. And because there were issues in Toronto at that time, concerns about those in the lower income bracket being able to uh, deal with uh, increased rental costs, rent control was brought in. And as you know, it's spoken to each year and it's capped. What I find interesting, in 1976, the private sector here in the City of Toronto built developed and brought 22,000 plus apartments, rental apartments that were affordable into the marketplace. By 1980, four years after rent controls were implemented, uh, the private sector built, developed, and brought online 200 apartments. And I think we can obviously understand we, and although the, the 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 legislation had tremendous intent, but in the longer run, it has hurt the very same demographic we were trying to protect. And we've driven the private sector away from the table of assisting all three levels of government in providing they affordable shut the, housing. They
0: shot themselves in the foot.
2: Over the long run, they did and that's one of the solutions that we if we're ever going to get back to it, and i find this interesting we give uh uh oh, somewhat uh consequence to that. purportedly here in canada the right to house is supposed to be a universal and national right and uh, uh between the two senior levels of government uh it's not there it's broken and we can kind of go back and think of, well, we had a housing crisis at the end of World War II because uh, we had the significant return of our armed forces from Europe. And of course, with the process of being, okay, now get down to a normal life. Uh, you're out of a war theater and uh, progress. And many got married, obviously, started to have children. Uh, that's the boom uh, generation. Canada built 1 million, what they're referred to as as victory homes, uh, strawberry houses, wartime housing. We built 1 million, and they were affordable. Mm-hmm. However, there was a super agency called the Wartime Housing Agency, and it was federally mandated, and it had sole discretion that its sole purpose was to build affordable housing to support and provide for returning veterans from abroad, and it worked. We have we've had success. We've had successive generations for that, and there is a shining example. And we do not have that agency anymore. And that's some of the innovative thinking, Steve. We need yes. to get back to.
0: So the, the, what you're basically saying that the competence in the past to address these issues, especially after the Second World War, during that uh, that era, the competence within the government circles was much greater than what it is today that's what you're saying you're pointing out oh, finger and you're basically saying there's tons of incompetence in the current political structure and governmental structure in terms of management systems decision making and you know basically process management managing the process itself that's what uh, you're saying
2: no question of that and i express this we have been abandoned
0: what about uh, the fe- now, anybody that lives downtown Toronto can see tens of thousands of new uh, immigrants, basically. Yes. What, how, what's your point? What's your your stance on the the federal federal because immigration is a federal situation, not a provincial nor a city. What's your right. uh, take on the mass immigration that's coming to Canada and, what- and particularly the city of Toronto? Well, as we know, Toronto uh,
2: is the largest, it's the city that receives the greatest number of newly arrived Canadians. I'm going to get beyond the immigrant piece. Uh, Any individual has the courage and will to get out of a nation where you're being abused, it's oppressive, it's repressive, and they get to Canada to start to rebuild and make a life for themselves and perhaps... Then subsequent to that, to be able to have their family and be reunited, the challenge for our country is this: uh, because of the boom generation, we have a dramatically aging labor force. So we need immigration, mm-hmm. and we need immigration specifically that will continue to uh, support our pay as I our pay as we go programs such as healthcare, CPP. We can go down the list. Thank you. Thank you. Exactly. The challenge is this, and I'm a fond affectionate of theater or movies. You know, the movie Field of Dreams with Kevin Costner, and it was an expression that said, you know, if he built the field, if he built the uh, small stadium, they will come. And what I'm expressing now, newly arrived Canadians are coming, but where's the housing? We have not built it. So there's another pressure in the competition for affordable housing. And this year alone, we are aware of the fact that there'll be 413,000 new Canadians arriving. And we don't have the housing. We don't have the housing in our pre-existing stock for those who are currently uh, homeless. And I don't want to get into the issue of one being worthier than the other. I think it's representative, however, of a total systemic incompetent failure. And it rests with the two senior levels of government and very much
0: more so with our federal level of government. So for those, again, not from Canada, there are three levels of government. Municipal, which is the cities or, or, provi- or areas within provinces. Then there's the provincial, and there are 10 in Canada, provincial government and then there is the federal government so what you're saying is all through these various layers of government you're 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 actually calling them out you're as a man on the front line you're calling them out for incompetence that's what you're doing
2: yes but i think we need to be aware of the fact that the one level of government which basically has no ability financially or even somewhat legislatively under the uh, City of Toronto Act is housing. It rests with the provincial level and the federal level of government. And folks need to be aware of the fact that the federal level of government, there is not a housing portfolio. What we do have in each province is the Ministry of Housing and that's provincial. And our federal level of government expresses upon occasion at their convenience that no they don't want to intercede because it could become a constitutional issue between those two levels of government. And once again it's just representative of abandonment.
0: Now we've got two minutes before the break and yes. the time the time is flying as it always does. Give us yes. some numbers in terms of immigration. How many roughly how many people immigrated to Canada last year, how many immigrants were received and and uh, the city of Toronto, if you've got some kind of
2: context. Yes. Last year, in 2022, uh, approximately 335,000. The year before, it was significantly less because COVID was at its peak. This year, we'll receive
0: 413,000. So that's nearly a million people within two years? Correct. And of that, 30
2: to 35% will reside in Toronto. And once again, I express this, that I'm embarrassed as a human being, as a Torontonian, as an Ontarian, as a Canadian, because I think we need to take a look at the optics of what went on at 129 Peter Street, Central Intake, where 200 Afrocentric, refugees and asylum seekers were sleeping on the sidewalk. And the optics of that and our reputation worldwide damaged beyond belief.
0: You know, I have to say, I, I did not know about that in downtown Toronto, which is which is only like 10-minute walk from me, uh, that Peter yeah. Street. And I did not know. But I do know that's happening in New York City. I mean, they're going absolutely berserk in New York because many of the well, they're illegals going to cross the border. The southern border are being shipped, literally, to into the cities. New York is one. And all these people are literally lying on the streets. It's it's beyond incredible. Um, no, I and mean, yes, yes, go ahead. No, Bob, we're going to take a break. and okay. I don't want to go over the time. So we'll be back right. and we'll pick up, uh, you know, the issues of how to deal with it. We're going to look at solutions. You're not just going to whine, Bob. I know that you're going to deal with solutions as well. So... Well, just, we're going to play some music. I'm Stephen Armstrong, listen to Innovation Nation. My guest is Bob Duff. We're on CIUT 89.5 FM in Toronto and worldwide at CIUT.fm. Just going to play, there's a lot of talk about the weather, and so I thought I'd play a weather song. Spinning around the room, you
1: were beautiful to see. Swinging your hips to the tune. You look beautiful to me When I wake from this dream Canadian September I'll just close my eyes And remember Writing stories Painting pictures Of a fading summer got your photo covered in kisses to warm december when i wake
0: from this dream canadian september we're back at the innovation nation on career bus and i'm your host stephen armstrong Before continuing to the second part of our interview, I want listeners to know about the Innovation Nation Archive. Go to amgimanagement.com, select radio show. There's about 115 previous shows on multiple topics, artificial intelligence, strategic thinking, design thinking, engineers without borders, creative destruction, entrepreneurship, advanced manufacturing. I mean, there's too many early childhood education. There's too many shows really to, to explain, but Before we go back with Bob Duff, I just want listeners to know that on the 24th of September 2022, we aired a show with Leah Denbach. The topic of the show was Behind the Veil, uh, a photographic journey into the plight of the homeless. This was just the very introduction. I recommend you all go to it because she humanized what goes on on the streets. And she chose many people from this community. And and interviewed them and photographed them and published a book, and she's done it in many cities, and she was uh, recognised on BBC, CBC, ABC, NBC, all these kind of big mainstream media stations got hold of her work and uh, highlighted it. So here's just a little excerpt from that interview. Your original objective, or and did that objective change?
1: My original objective was actually that I was just trying to look for interesting subject matter to photograph because I started the project when I was 15 years old and I was really just trying to broaden my portfolio but really after that first experience with photographing people experiencing homelessness my objectives changed and I realized that homelessness is such a big problem and the people are so stereotyped. So I brought on the two goals of firstly, to humanize people experiencing homelessness and secondly, to shine a spotlight on the problem of homelessness. And since then, I've my empathy for people experiencing homelessness has only grown uh, and it's turned into me wanting to take this on as a project in order to help people experiencing homelessness. So I no longer have the goal of merely looking for interesting subject matter and I've also been able to receive hundreds of comments from people around the world confirming that I have indeed accomplished these goals of humanizing people experiencing homelessness and shining a spotlight on their flight. If you would like to uh, share with you one of the comments. Go
0: so, ahead. Well, can, you can share a few because I, I, I actually, you know, as you know, I read, I really studied your fourth. Actually, I won't. I won't continue there. You, <laughs> I could be carried away with it, but it was a very good. You know, Bob, yes. you're you're in the management of these people, and this whole situation. Well, this was just another view into it. Yeah. So I thought I would just share that because a whole hour long program, and like, and her books and all are all available on Amazon and she really does dig up and, and she takes you into the lives of individuals. And that, that particular show, we we got some lots of case studies and I know, you know, this stuff. Yes. So, so it's sort of an an addition to the work you do, but let's get into you again. Talk about well, that. It's funny. My next question to you was what about the human touch to dealing with homelessness and Leah Denbach started that journey by exposing and she called it behind the veil. So that's the that, that's the first thing. First of all, to make people aware there are issues. So I'll hand it over to you. How do you go about it? She's one method. What are, the, are the, there are many others. Go ahead.
2: Yes, well, I think that we have to as we unpack this, uh, and there's pieces to it in the human element side. It is unfortunate, but the life expectancy. For, and I hate using the word average, individual who is absolutely homeless or significantly and precariously underhoused and goes for periods of homelessness, uh, that individual's life expectancy is 20 years less than those of us who are adequately housed. 20 years. The other piece which is challenging with this is also just the quality of life. Because in drilling down into it and moving forward, I think we can all discern that there is no quality of life. It is purely a miserable existence. Waking up, if you can, soaking wet, cold, hot. And by the way, as you're probably aware, we used to open uh, 16 to 17 shelters uh, annually that we called out of the cold programs. Because the whole piece behind that, I think that we and I have to be careful with this, the the concept of someone uh, losing their life because of uh, hypothermia, freezing to death on the street, we just went, no, that can't happen. Uh, The latest numbers is that for that population, there's a greater loss of life now during extreme weather such as heat. And there's a myriad of factors contributing into that. So the loss of life is there regardless of whether it's December 31st or whether it's July 5th. We are losing people each and every day. There's another piece to this, where there was this gentleman who was living in a bus shelter stop, and it was the corner of college and university. And a reporter from The Globe engaged with that gentleman and asked, said, you know, you choose to live here? He said, yep, my own volition. And he went through the process of saying, you know, uh, your quality of life, your life expectancy in and of itself is greatly diminished, and your health. And he expressed that was his inalienable right. I understand rights, but I ask this question. Looking at the Mental Health Act, and when it could be discerned or is determined that the actions over which someone might have control compromise that individual's health, their right to life and their life expectancy, because they are a a danger and threat to their own life. I ask now, should we not have the ability to support that person, transition them into a CAMH or an addiction treatment center, uh, obviously to work with that fellow human being to make the process, to take the steps to return them to our community as a fully participating individual, and the Mental Health Act of uh, the Province of Ontario, uh, it needs to be revisited, and that's one of the solutions. So I'm not whining; that's a solution.
0: Bob, well, what what's this concept of a frequent flyer? Uh, oh, Saint Michael's Hospital. There's a term used.
1: Yeah. It, for it's those a- who
0: don't know, Saint Michael's Hospital is one of the big ones in downtown Toronto East Side. And uh, what's the frequent flyer? Well, first and foremost, let's understand St. Mike's. It is
2: juxtaposed to some other uh, hospitals, and I won't name names, has tremendous experience. And we often refer to within our sector as the urban angel. Uh, St. Mike's has tremendous experience, but the reality is for folks who are homeless, obviously they do not have a family practitioner. It's a separate issue. So unfortunately, have to rely on the emergency ward at St. Mike's for whether it's an ingrown toenail or a serious infection. And within that, uh, there is the expression that they become frequent flyers. And it's not a derogatory expression. It's just like, well, at least we're here and we're the last uh, step in the ladder to save your life and to have maybe a bit of a platform that we'd start to work with you to you know, mitigate some of the challenges. And there's a cost to that, because as we're all aware, the cost of triage in any hospital, once we walk in through a merge, uh, it varies from anywhere in the amount of $600 where you're there for 20 minutes or up to 2,500. And that's impacting our uh, the Ministry of Health and the budget for health here in the province of Ontario. So it's kind of an interesting piece because it's a, in my opinion, it is synonymous with being a waste of resources. Somewhere. So there is a solution. Solution if folks we know this, if they're adequately housed, uh, the opportunity and the ability to get into a healthcare clinic and have it as your primary service provider increases dramatically. And in that, we all profit, and we profit emotionally, we profit socially, and actually, we profit because of cost reduction. The economic, the economic. It's an economic uh, economic
0: factor. Yeah. I want I want to declare to you uh, um, when I was a student in London, England, uh, went from Belfast to London. It was innocent to some extent, and was the summer we with, went with another friend but i was taking up a place at university and we wanted to hang out in london well we found ourselves homeless <laughs> for two, only for two nights yeah and, and lived and stayed in a what the well, it wasn't a doss house but it was a big gymnasium near leicester square yes and lying on the floor you know you, you had your sleeping bag and, and we actually stayed in hackney marshes as well which was which was that? That was no big deal. But living in the homeless—it was a homeless shelter, but it was like for a hundred people or more, maybe. But it was a large gymnasium. It wasn't the permanent kind of homeless accommodation that you're dealing with. This was for people that were completely desperate, just to get off the street, and it was total hell on earth. Now that's only for two nights, and that is a long, long time ago—forty years. And I will never forget the nightmare that it was. So, uh, you know, it, it, it this is serious stuff. I mean, I mean, I I, I never had anything like it since. But I, I, I experienced it that one time, and it was a shock and it was frightening. And I never gave it another thought after that until recently. Actually, believe it or not. So there's a story for you, Bob. Um, well, you go ahead. Well, here in Toronto, and we're fortunate
2: because our municipal level of government, and I have to acknowledge uh, folks, SSHA, which is Shelter, Support, and Housing Administration, and those folks, and some of you might think of them as bureaucrats, most of them have worked frontline in mm-hmm. shelter. Land. There are one or two that actually have been
0: homeless themselves,
2: And They
0: just don't know it academically. They know it practically.
2: Precisely. As a matter of fact, some of your best frontline uh, staff uh, are not academics by any stretch of imagination, but because of lived experience, they bring that to the table, and that makes such a significant difference with our service users, because they know they've been there, they've done it, they bought the T-shirt, and it's remarkable to see that impact. But I'm coming back to, in Toronto, we have shelter standards. And I can express this, that when I first had to live in a shelter for, I was there for uh, just over a year and a half, Uh, (laughs) there weren't really any standards. And so, yes, shelter life was certainly very challenging. Through the years, uh, with support of our municipal level of government and with uh, shelter providers, we've evolved and we develop standards. And so therefore, there are certain rights that are inalienable. Also within that is that uh, the safety and well-being of the greater uh, number always takes precedent. And I can express this, a number of critical incidents that we used to experience uh, in our sector has declined dramatically. So in that, there's been a slight change, we could say this, in the quality of life but I still circumnavigate back, is that shelters are not designed to be housing. They're not designed to be a home of your own. Now we do have some experience now with the 29 hotels. Yes, we increased the 29 hotels during the height of COVID to save lives, to provide adequate space separation. And some of the outcomes of that have been very, very pronounced. And even within our own hotel here, uh, we've only had to rely on calling uh 51 division, which is our local uh police uh, division. Yes. Just so folks understand. Uh we've called them three times in two and a half years. That's nothing. Yeah. And I can express this: when I first was working in Shelterland, uh we would end up calling Uh, depending on whether it was a full moon. Full moons are real and very influential. Uh, The weather uh, sometimes would be four times during the 24-hour period. And we would see people injured. We would experience staff being injured. And it was challenging, to say the least. So...
0: Bob, I want to get. I want to move on to other topics. What about the political, the concept of political correctness? I know that's an issue with you. Tell me what. Why the concept of political correctness is actually a negative uh, philosophy and a a negative influence on your work?
2: It's challenging because without being resourced adequately, which we are not, and to look at it from within that realm and concept that we can be all to all, anytime is virtually impossible. The other piece that's challenging and most specifically to work with newly arrived Canadians and that is to support and also to assist in newly arrived Canadians understanding this is Canada now, this is Toronto. And within that, we also acknowledge that, unfortunately, uh, any of us can bring some of our baggage and our hatreds and et cetera from our nation of origin. And unfortunately, it can show up here, whereas we're aware that's not not what we uh, look at. I think this, we're challenged and we have to be very honest. Uh, 30% of all our shelter beds currently are uh, newly arrived Canadians. Refugees and asylum seekers are residing in those shelter beds. And I express this fortunately, and kudos to our municipal level of government for being able to accomplish this. But once again, it's a significant pressure. uh, And I express that Bringing it back to where it belongs, federal level of government, immigration, purely is at the discretion of the federal level of government, except for Quebec has a bit of a different uh, uh, modality Mm -hmm. that's unique to the province of Quebec. Mm -hmm. So we're asking the most junior level of government, the city to provide all these services, and we do not have the revenue stream. And Mayor Chow, and I'm not partisan politics in any way, shape or form, but she is absolutely correct. And I saw her just a week ago, and the Olivia Chow that I saw when she first uh, was, you know, became mayor, and if you notice, she was very happy, smiling, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I've seen her a few times now and the smile's gone and the weight of that, that weight of that office is just, we can only imagine.
0: It's like, it's like anything you, once you walk in the shoes of the people that you criticize and you know all about it. Precisely. So Bob, we've 10 minutes to go with actually nine minutes to go. So in that time, I want you to in like nine minutes deal with the cost of housing and then let's get into solutions Cost of housing is just an enormous issue. Give us some statistics on that in the city of Toronto. Well, the city of Toronto, uh,
2: the the detached house that was three bedrooms, washroom, living room, kitchen, in 1970 sold for $22,000 on average. Today, a detached home sells for over $1 million. What we have to look at is that if we looked at 1970 as a benchmark, uh, income-wise, housing would cost us about 3.5 times greater than our annual income. Today, it's pushing 20, and there's a cost driver that how folks could, well, it's brought about the need that you have to have a dual income family First and foremost, you probably need to have uh, an ability to rent out a small uh, built-in uh, apartment in your basement to generate rental revenue. But at the end of the day, it's all somewhat very precarious. And I express this. I'm just concerned about debt levels within that. And I express this. It's a adage: There's no such thing as a free lunch, and the lunch isn't on the house. We're in trouble. And we're in significant trouble. Yeah, Go ahead. I think it's real estate has become uh, it's representative of uh, 24% of the wealth of Canadians. I just think we need to delay this a bit. Construction related to housing uh, represents $1.4 billion a year in wages, uh, it generates a significant percentage and actually is now about 21% of our GDP. So I think that if we kind of delay that, and then we also know the taxes that are related to that. And there's a bit of a killer that came into the affordability of housing. And as we're aware, uh, Prime Minister Brian Rooney, And Canada, like many other nations, uh, brought in what we call a VAT tax, value-added tax, initially noted as the dreaded GST and then subsequently as the HST.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: Pre-existing to that, we had what was called the hidden manufacturer's tax, which was 11%. There was no tax on labour. What we do know now is that labour is HST, Yes. Is attached to it. Yes, at 13%. And the cost of the average dwelling here in Canada, 30% of the cost is specific to labor. So that's been an inflationary pressure there in and of itself. And so it's hurt over the long run. Great concept. And as we know, I think HST this year alone will bring in about $39 billion for the federal level of government, via whatever. Or I know they're sharing with the province. But it's just another fact that has driven up the cost of real estate in relationship to affordability. And I mean, it's, the reality is now, uh, the concept of the, and I don't want to become jingoistic and people accuse me of being too pro-American because I'm half and half. And that is, if we had a Canadian dream, the reality for all of us was at one time, yes home ownership and retaining it was very achievable and you did not have to be in the upper income bracket that's gone
0: well that's disappeared you really described it well when you said in 1970 to buy a home it was the home the house was worth 3.5 more than your your annual salary and today it's 11 times that says it all in a nutshell so the, yes. the standard of living has imploded Uh, yes it has for for young people and and newcomers and so on
2: absolutely absolutely and that's where i feel guilty for the generation that's following you and i and the generation behind that generation uh like it's and we can see the results of it because uh there's a greater percentage now of young adults that uh are staying in the nest because they can't afford to move out of their parents home
0: but I'll also say that, that it will not attract new innovators and new innovators. Young, young people from other countries are simply not going to come here when they see these numbers. So, Bob, we've, we fight, and that's a big problem. That's a huge problem. It simply won't attract high quality people, this country. No. Okay, Bob, four, five minutes to go, four minutes to go. Let's talk about solutions and okay. maybe, get, maybe give some case studies of, of solutions. Go ahead. Tell the government or tell the authorities what needs to be done, in a nutshell.
2: Okay. First and foremost, we need to have a universal guaranteed annual income. And this was discussed in the early 70s. And when I refer to it as such, we have a myriad of, we've got Ontario Disability Support Plan, we've got Ontario Works, which are two separate vehicles, We actually have a version of Canada Pension Plan disability. Uh, We start to look at it, and I can look at one program which has worked universally well, and it's universal. It's pan-Canadian employment insurance. So whether I live in Squamish, British Columbia, or here in Toronto, my EI is uniform, and the requirements for it are uniform. So therefore, it's universal. And I look at something and I just, the other day I was thinking about, when we responded to COVID, that's where I uh, acknowledge our existing uh, federal level of government. Yes, they were very expeditious. Yes, there were some challenges with it, but in rolling out a standardized amount, $2,000 a month was called the CERN per individual. That was remarkable. It kept our economy uh, alive. Because without that, we would certainly would have been more than a recession. And it worked. So my question now is, there needs to be, and we don't need to go back to the drawing board and be innovative. And really seriously consider uh, a form of universal income that gives us a level playing field. Uh, And I express this. I know some folks go uh, from an economic point of view that transfer payments... We know what transfer payments are, are considered to be excessively inflationary. And we now know that's not actually reality. So, two, we need to have a national housing strategy. And I'm not saying window dressing, it needs to be universal, it needs to be national, and we need to recreate. A, a body equivalent to the wartime housing authority. And that will provide efficiencies. And I'd set it up as a crown corporation, which keeps it at arm's length from any level
0: of government. Well, too, Bob, but yes. does that not create a culture of dependency, a universal income? No,
2: because that would capture every so it capture those individuals that are on ODSP and rightfully so, because they're gonna say. They'll never be able to be employed. Mm-hmm. And just coming back to that, if we want to look at it, Stephen, we reduced ODSP, common sense revolution in 1995 by 21%. And we look at the uh, rates, uh, the rates for ODSP currently as of this year, and thank you, uh, Premier Ford has increased it by 5.5%. And that's in partially to offset inflation. Uh when we circle back to it, it's that to make it meaningful, because if ODSP had kept pace with inflation, the monthly allowance would be almost three times greater than what it was uh, subsequent to the 21% reduction. And here's a piece we need to also consider within that. In Canada now, We have more food banks than we do McDonald's franchises. So it's become an accepted way of life for many because there's not enough money. The cupboard's empty Mm -hmm. that Canadians are having to rely on food banks. And by the way, that's inclusive of the working poor. And there's a huge number of the working poor, which continues to increase. You know, and demographics always factor into many things. And I was just looking at the other day the number of folks, recipients of ODSP, uh, compared to 1992 as of today has tripled. Why is that? We are an aging population. So I'm trying to think of good solutions.
0: All right, Well, and Bob, some of, Bob, Bob yeah. with, 20, with the 20 seconds, I just, there are thousands of, hundreds of skyscrapers going up in downtown Toronto. More yes. construction in Toronto than any in all the other cities in North America combined. No yep. city is like it, except maybe a Chinese cities or China, uh, Shanghai, perhaps, with skyscrapers. Yes. So all these skyscraper condos gonna are gonna. What's that all about? When they the average cost could be 800,000 800, to five million per per condos. I mean, what is going on there?
2: Well, we also know there's a lot of foreign investment in that. Uh, also within that, within our own market, it's speculative. Okay, so it's and I have to express this we have yeah. to be careful. Thank heavens that there has been that development because it has had a positive impact on the availability of housing for some. Yes, so if we hadn't had that, we've got to be careful, we would be in more dire straits than what we are now, and we also have to acknowledge that. I expressed development fees, which municipalities are completely reliant upon now, and that is they represent, here in Toronto alone, it's about $340 million, which is a good percentage of our annual municipal budget. And without that, if we think our subway system is challenged and our parks are a little dirty and we're having other challenges, take another $340 million out of the pocket.
0: All and right, so Bob, therefore Bob, yes. Bob, we're done. But I want you All to right. in 12 seconds tell us a great story about a homeless person who became who made it to the top. Give well, it an, in 10 yes. seconds.
2: Frank O'Day was homeless many years ago. And he created the company and founded Second Cup. He went from homelessness to very successful and also supports a number of charities and there's a brain trust innovative nation had we not had that shelter
0: frank oday wouldn't be alive today all right bob Bob, you've said it all thank you so much we're done yep all right i'm going to wrap up then we'll we'll have you back again in a few months to to see what i'm going to make this a regular theme on my show bob thank you very much you're welcome, Steve. Thank you. I'm your host, Stephen Armstrong. If you have any comments today's show or with questions about Innovation Nation, email me at sarmstrong at amgimanagement.com. Thanks to my guest, Bob Duff, Executive Director at St. Simon's Shelter for the Homeless in Toronto. You've been listening to Innovation Nation on Career Bus, Canada's unique radio conversation that empowers lives, enriches careers, and energizes organizations on C I U T 89.5 FM.